1: Our changing world Namihi Nui and welcome to our changing world Alice Allison Balance TNA. Later on we've the story of Florine from the Elemental podcast but first, accents and how and why we speak the way we do are a fascinating area of research. Lynn Clark at the University of Canterbury is a linguist investigating New Zealand's distinctive regional Southland R. Working with her on the Marsden-funded project is postdoctoral researcher Daniel Villareal. Most of us describe the Southland accent as a rolled R, but I know that's not quite right. So what exactly should we be calling it?
2: There are a few different things that we call it. I think the main thing we call it probably is post-vocalic R. And that means R in a very specific environment, right? It only happens after vowels, OK, post-vocalic. So you get R all across New Zealand initially like the word red everybody says r in red okay but not everybody says r in car like car rental okay so it's that very specific phonological environment that we're interested in that post vocalic r that's the place where you sometimes get r and sometimes don't so it's variable my accent does it all the time and in southland well we just don't know what happens really there's this stereotype this kind of idea this salience um, associated with post R, that people roll their R's. And, and really all that means is that they sometimes say R after Vel and sometimes don't.
3: But I've literally had uh, someone say to me, Oh, you're studying Southland. Yeah, they roll their R's. Nurr, sturr, dirty. I thought <laughs> no one in Iceland does that. <laughs> yeah, we we want to set the record straight. <laughs> that is not how it sounds. <coughs> yeah.
1: No, it's actually a very subtle R. Absolutely, yeah, Dirt- yeah. yeah, yeah. Dirty purple
3: work shirt. Dirty purple work shirt.
1: You've got quite a nice R going on there. <laughs> yes,
3: well, as an American, it comes naturally to me, I suppose. <laughs> yeah.
1: Like most native English speakers outside of Scotland, Ireland and North America, I don't have a post-vocalic R. Like most Kiwis, I say she wore a dirty purple work shirt. I'm mostly dropping the R following a vowel. My car is more of a car. Now listen to Ali King.
4: The man from Gore wore wore a purple... (laughs) The man from Gore... Wore a dirty purple shirt.
1: As Daniel said, these slightly rolled post-vocalic R's, which linguists, by the way, describe as rhotic consonants, are something quite different from a full-on rolled R. RNZ's Otago Southland reporter Tim Brown has a strong post-vocalic R.
4: Rory wore a dirty purple work shirt to court and gore.
1: But just to be clear, he doesn't roll his R's at the beginning of words. Ruby had a red robe. Historically English speakers were much more rhotic than they are today. Back to Lynn.
2: These days you're almost entirely restricted to R after what we call a nurse vowel. So these are vowels that ring with the word nurse, not in my accent and um, but in a New Zealand accent. So nurse. Okay. Nurse. Yes. <laughs> uh, so you get things like nurse and words and church and earthquake, right? These ones are all nurse words, and this is where this variable R is largely restricted to now in Southland accents but that wasn't always the case so when we go back 100 years or 80 years then you find that there's much much more R across different environments and we were interested I guess in trying to understand more about what actually people do in Southland and how that came about.
1: Because it's a very distinct regional accent and we don't actually have many of those in New Zealand, do we?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, it's an open question about whether we have many of them in New Zealand. We don't really know. (laughs) But certainly people think it's a very distinctive accent. To what extent it actually is different from other varieties of New Zealand English, that again is an open question and it's something that we're interested in finding out. So when you ask people about um, different accents in New Zealand and you give them a map, say, and you ask them to circle the different dialect areas... They overwhelmingly will circle Southland and they'll write something about how people have this ruled R, but it's the only feature that they can pick out. And it'd be really weird to say that an accent exists simply because of one single phonological feature, right? Most accents are different on a whole range of different levels. So one research question that we have is, in what other ways is Southland different? Or is it even that different from other varieties of New Zealand English? But certainly this R seems to be very meaningful, very salient, potentially carries some social meaning in the community, so people use it potentially to signal something about themselves. Has it been studied before? Yes, it's been studied by someone called Chris Bartlett, who collected a reasonably sized corpus of speech from Southlanders, from both Invercargill and from elsewhere, rural environments in Southland. And he counted up the number of times that he heard R after a vowel in this post-vocalic context and looked at how that patterns across different generations and by men and by women. And the thing that we're adding to that, I guess, is uh, partly we're growing the data set. So we have a much bigger corpus to draw on from a much longer time span. So we can see the trajectory of change. We can see how that changes over time. And partly we're we're adding some statistical rigor to the Analysis, So we can actually see, did R statistically increase or decrease in certain periods of time? And we're adding some more kind of fine-grained phonetic nuance. So R is a tricky thing to pin down phonetically. It's difficult because there are different ways of saying R and different people hear R to different extents, right? So some people will hear an R where other people don't. So it's a kind of a gradient thing.
3: We should mention that it's not just kind of lay people who have difficulty hearing R or telling whether or not it's there. It's kind of a well-known thing in linguistics in, in the study of acoustic phonetics, the physical properties of speech sounds, that R and its neighbors in English and a lot of other world's languages are really quite strange. There are people who devote their entire careers to the class of sounds that R belongs to. So it's no wonder that if you're not devoting your career to listening to these R's, that you might hear them as different in one context or another, or that you might uh, hear it as rolled when in reality it's not something quite as strong as that. So you talk about a corpus that,
1: of work that you're working with, that's recordings?
2: Yes, yes. So, um, so essentially what we do is we've collected a range of different recordings that exist. So people have been interviewed often about their life. We got a lot of recordings gifted to us um, from the Southland Oral History Project. We then transcribe that. We put it inside a database that then forces the transcription, the written transcription, and the sound file together. And it gives every single phonological segment there, a representation, so that we can then search that corpus for every instance of R. And then we can either choose to listen to those individually, which would take many months (laughs) and would be incredibly boring. Or what Dan's been trialing is we can try to train a computer to predict if the thing that you give it is an
3: R or not. The particular method that I've been using is called a uh, random forest classifier. And this method uses a statistical method that basically tries to look for patterns in the data that we feed it. So we feed this statistical method a bunch of information about the acoustics, the physical properties of the speech sounds of these R's, and we feed it an answer. In essence, we say we've got one R that is an r, er, um, and it's got this measurement here, it's got that measurement there, it's got that measurement there, we've got this other R that's less strong, that's more of an ah, and it's got this measurement, that measurement, that measurement, and the computer program churns through all of these measurements, churns through this answer key, and based on that, it comes up with this algorithm for predicting new data that it hasn't seen before, based on the acoustic fingerprint of that data. So without us telling it whether the R is there or not, it looks at all the acoustic measures that we feed it. And based on the data that we've trained it on, it will guess whether it's there or not. Um, But it doesn't just guess, is it there or is it not there? It comes up with a probability. So if it's a really strong, really likely R, it'll be closer to one. If it's Rather sure that it's not an R, that there's not an R there, it'll be closer to zero. And actually, in a listening experiment that we conducted a few months ago, uh, where we had some phonetically trained listeners hear a bunch of these R's that we sampled to have different probabilities, we found that there was this really striking pattern where the more likely that the classifier said there was to be an R there the higher percentage of listeners, phonetically trained listeners, said that there was an R there. So this kind of squishiness, this gradients, this sense of really R-ish R's or not very R-ish R's, that was successfully captured by this classifier method. For me, that's probably the part that I'm most excited about with this research that we've been doing.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's meant that we can analyze a vast, vast number of tokens of R that we just wouldn't have had the time to hand code and that no one else before us has been able to hand code and so we can see patterns that otherwise we wouldn't have had enough
1: data to see. So how many people have you got in your recordings? About 200 in the corpus and they range in ages so they range in birth dates?
2: Yes yes so we have the oldest birth date that we have in our corpus is from about 1900 right through to I think 1985 is our youngest birth date so almost 100 years in time.
1: Lynn can't share recordings from the Southland oral history, but Ngātaunga Sound and Vision did a search for old archival recordings of rural Southland men, and the team found a couple of classics. Here's Bill Stewart, recorded in 1978, talking about his childhood. He rolls his R's a lot everywhere. Well, I was born in Dunedin in 1896, and uh, I'm a Southlander. Although well, so I went, my mother, we went up to Dunedin so that I could be produced in Dunedin, but at the same time I am a Southlander and I'm still very biased in favour of Southland. And I still back Southland for the Ranfairly Shield. My mother was born in Riverton well over a hundred years ago, in the very early days of Southland. My father came from the Black Isle across the water from Inverness. Now, in 1903, I was about seven years of age at that time, and that was when the big hard winter took place. Everard Hill was recorded in 1990 recollecting buying his first car in the 1930s when he was just 13 years old. He's not so rful, but listen out for his first or first at the end. To me it was the nicest car I've ever owned and I've owned some nice cars but it was because it was your first. Lynn and Daniel also have modern recordings from the Christchurch Earthquake Stories project. This woman has only a slight rolled R, in some words such as earthquake. First of all my car was four blocks away and the earthquakes hadn't stopped nor the noise. Lynn and Daniel are only part way through their research but they're already turning up interesting findings.
2: Well we're discovering I guess that it's much more complicated than we initially thought. So our preliminary reading around this topic had led us to believe that the story that existed about the development of R in was was that it came and went and then came back. So there was a, a kind of a narrative that existed in New Zealand English linguistics literature that R was there initially in the input, and so early settlers were incredibly Rful. And is that everywhere. because they
1: came from Scotland? Is that the story?
2: Yeah, I mean, they didn't always come from Scotland, but certainly about 65% of them in Southland came from Scotland, and so it was certainly the majority variant. But there were other variants there in the mix too, so it, it wasn't that it was necessarily 100% what we call our full, 100% rotic. But yes, it seems like it's there among the early settlers and then it tailed off at some point and has now come back in this nurse environment, okay? And that was what we thought we were going to find. That's not what we found. <laughs> when we actually looked at this across a 100-year time span, we found that the women from as early as 1900 already had this nurse and other... Split. In other words, they were only using r following nurse fills the pattern that we see today in Southland. They had that hundred years ago. Okay, the men didn't. They had r everywhere. <laughs> they had more r following nurse, but they certainly had r everywhere. And so we find a situation where over time, what's happened with the women is that they have gradually increased the amount of r that they have following nurse fills, and still nothing elsewhere. And the men have adopted that pattern, essentially, right? So they have gone through a series of trying to (laughs) figure out their phonological system and eventually settled on the same system that the women had 100 years ago, right? Where they have this R following nurse environments and basically no R elsewhere. Um, And it's really, really unusual to find, we don't really know of any other cases where you have such a very clear and stark gender split, so often you'll find in studies of language variation and change that women and men have different frequencies of variants. so you might well expect to find that men have more R than women. But it's almost unheard of, I think, to find that they have different phonological constraints on that variation, right? So the fact that the women had this phonological pattern where they only used R following nurse and not elsewhere, and the men didn't, we don't know of any other cases like that anywhere (laughs) and so we're trying to scratch our heads and figure out why that might be
3: that's one part of the kind of gender puzzle of the history and trajectory of southland english the other is that if you break down kind of the social factors guiding uh, variation in R in this community, not just by gender, and not just by generation, but also where speakers were from, whether they were from Invercargill or from rural areas in Southland. Uh, You find that it's rural men who use the most R, then men from Invercargill, and then women from rural Southland, and then women from Invercargill in decreasing order of roticity or Rfulness. And that kind of squares with, I think... Our kind of cultural image of like the Southlander who's, you know, hard at work on the farm, who is hard at work dealing with adverse weather conditions, et cetera. But what's strange about that is that it's usually the young women who are at the vanguard of change. It's not often the case that women look at the existing variation in a community, go, oh, the way that the older rural men sound, that's the way that I want to sound. So that's something that we have to detangle and I think by looking potentially more into the social history of Southland, that's something that can help us understand why we see these patterns which we don't see in any other speech communities.
2: Yeah, so just to be clear, people think that R changed in Southland. There are essentially two changes here. So on the one hand, there's a change among the men, where they adopted the same phonological constraints on R as the women already had. And then there's another change, which is that the women increase their frequency of R after nurse fails. One interesting thing that I could kind of anecdotally mention too is that there's this stereotype that this post vocalic R is associated with Southland. But I think increasingly it's elsewhere in New Zealand. I have students who come up to me and say, I'm not from Southland, I'm from Christchurch, and I say work in purple. Uh, So I think there's potentially a change in progress where we're starting to see this variant that was initially marked as a kind of a Southland older men variant uh, creep into other varieties of New Zealand English. And there are other uh, changes too that we know of in Auckland English where this R is returning to Auckland for potentially quite different reasons. So the linguistic situation today is unclear, but it seems like this R is no longer restricted to only Southland and is potentially spreading.
1: Now... Cast your mind back to Ali and Tim, both clearly from Southland, right? The man from Gore wore a dirty purple shirt. Where were you brought up, Ali? (laughs) I was brought up in Southland,
3: in Toachapri.
4: Rory wore a dirty purple work shirt to court in Gore. I'm Tim Brown, a regional reporter for RNZ based in Otago, Southland. I am a born and raised Otago boy, the son of an Otago boy, and unfortunately I picked up the characteristic Southland rolling of the R from my father, even though he never spent any time living in Southland, nor did I. So
1: it is spreading. Where are Lynn and Daniel going to next take their Southland R accent research?
2: There are a couple of different avenues of research that we are going to follow up with. One at the moment that we're interested in is trying to better understand what motivates people's choice, essentially, when they have this slot available to them after a nurse fill. Sometimes they'll say, ah, and sometimes they won't. And so we're trying to understand what motivates that choice. And one thing that we've been thinking about lately is to what extent the topic of conversation potentially influences whether you decide to use an R there or not. And we've found that among the younger speakers in our corpus, there does indeed seem to be a topic effect such that if they are talking about local Southland stuff um, and particularly if they have a positive affiliation towards Southland then they do indeed seem to use more R in that kind of environment. So that again just signals to us, um, it's salience as a kind of an identity marker, right? That people choose to articulate this R in this spot, a bit like wearing a badge or something, right? To say, I'm a Southlander and I feel positively about that and so I'm going to use R here to show that. The other thing that we're going to do is look at other aspects of the accent. So as we said already, it's really weird to think of an accent as being different from other accents simply by one single phonological feature. It'd be bizarre. Nowhere else in the world does this exist. So there must be other differences between Southland English and other varieties of New Zealand English. It's just that they're not nearly as salient, so they're not readily commented on. So we're going to look at the vowel system of Southland R. Um, and uh, we've done a little pilot study of this, which has suggested that there may well be some interesting avenues of research here. So... One fairly massive change that's happened to New Zealand English over the last 100, 150 years is what we call the short front vowel shift. Um, so we have a series of different vowels that are quite short <laughs> and these are essentially the vowel in a word like trap, the vowel in a word like dress and the vowel in a word like kit. And they have essentially shifted up one place. Okay, So a New Zealander today won't say trap, they'll say trep. Um, they won't say dress, they'll say dress, and they won't say kit, they'll say cut. Okay, So everything has shifted by one position, essentially. And what we've found in our small pilot study of this is that this change seems to have happened earlier in Southland English than elsewhere in New Zealand. So it may well be that it's a change that began its life in Southland and then spread out. So we need much, much more data, so we're going to mine the corpus in the way that we have for R, now for the vowels, to try and validate that hypothesis potentially something interesting there.
1: Many thanks, Lynn. Lynn Clark is in the Department of Linguistics and Daniel Villarreal is a postdoctoral fellow in the New Zealand Institute of Language, Brain and Behaviour and they are both at the University of Canterbury. Their research into the Southland accent is funded by a Marsden grant. A big thank you too to Ali King in Southland, RNZ's Tim Brown in Dunedin and to Ngā Sound and Vision for the archive audio. Kata Fakarongamai, quakito tato al horihori, kitareo erirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ. Now it's time for some chemistry with Professor Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology. And this episode from the podcast Elemental is all about the element fluorine.
4: We talk about fluorine, we talk about fluoride. And they're two very, very different beasties. And the whole reason I got into science communication was, in fact, a letter to the editor which said that we shouldn't put fluoride in water because fluorine is in the nerve gas sarin. And so, obviously, if it's a nerve gas, it can't be good for you. So, why are we putting fluoride in our water? And I was quite horrified by the fact that they actually printed this letter, and so I wrote a little rejoinder, and I guess there it all started.
1: And here we are. (laughs) So tell me the basics for fluorine, and then explain to me what fluoride is to fluorine.
4: Okay, so the vital statistics, fluorine, chemical symbol F, atomic number nine, which puts it right at the top right-hand side of the periodic table, a very privileged position there. Now, what's the difference between fluorine and fluoride? Fluorine, as we will find out, is a highly, highly toxic gas with the chemical formula F2, and that exists as fluorine molecules. Fluoride is what happens when you take a fluorine molecule and give it two electrons, and you then end up with two fluoride ions, and they have the chemical formula F-. There is a big difference between them, as hopefully will become apparent as we go on.
1: So how long have we known of fluorine for?
4: It was first known that something was funny, I guess, with a particular compound, and this was a thing called spar or fluorite. Nowadays we call it calcium fluoride. This was a mineral that was found to emit light when it was heated, and in fact this is where the name fluorescence comes from.
1: Really? I'd never (laughs) made that connection, fluorine, fluorescence, of course. Where does the name fluorine actually come from?
4: Well, it comes from the Greek, and again, forgive my pronunciation, fluere, and that means to flow. And it was finally isolated in 1886. Certainly there was evidence for its existence, but the actual element itself was extraordinarily difficult to isolate for the mere fact that it is so reactive. So the guy who got this in the end was one Henri Moissin, and he won the Nobel Prize in 1906 for doing this, which... Really, back in that time, must have been an extraordinary achievement. So as I say, it is very, very reactive. It's a pale green gas, and really it reacts with all the elements on the periodic table with the possible exceptions of helium, neon, and argon.
1: I'm just wondering how you store it then. If it's really reactive, uh-huh. you know, you've made v- yes. the gas, yep. how do you keep it without just it glomping onto anything else <laughs> that's lying around?
4: What an excellent question. So, what it's normally kept in is nickel cylinders. And what happens is that as soon as you put it in the nickel cylinder, it reacts with the nickel and it forms a nickel fluoride coating on the inside surface. And that nickel fluoride coating passivates the rest of the surface to further reaction with fluorine. So you can actually store it inside uh, nickel cylinders. And just to give you some idea of just how reactive it is and just how dangerous and why people shouldn't work with it, I had a visitor to my lab many, many years ago who worked in a laboratory where they had a fluorine generating uh, contraption. And somebody managed to leave the tap open one day and accidentally this guy put his thumb over the outflowing Mm. fluorine gas and his thumb caught fire.
1: (laughs) Oh, ouch.
4: (laughs) Yuck. (laughs) So, yes, it is very, very, very reactive. Obviously, it's going to kill you if you inhale it. It's extraordinarily nasty like that. So that's fluorine gas. You can also make a thing called hydrofluoric acid, which has got the chemical formula HF. And that is also extremely nasty. You don't want to spill that on your skin because uh, what happens is it it keeps burning and burning and burning despite you putting water or whatever on it. And the only antidote to that is a thing called calcium gluconate. So you have to be very, very careful when you're working with hydrofluoric acid. Now, having said that, we've got all the nasty parts of fluorine out of the way. Fluorine is, in fact, an essential trace element in humans, and you mostly find it in the bones and in the teeth. So uh, if it's an essential trace element, it can't all be bad. And what is also found is that many synthetic drugs, so people have estimated around about 15% of all the drugs on the market actually contain fluorine, and these are fluorine atoms, the reason being that it aids in fat solubility. So when you want uh, your drugs to get into uh, fatty parts of the body, that is how you do it.
1: So important in health but highly toxic at the same time. It just depends a bit on the quantity and the state it's in.
4: Indeed, like, like any poison, I guess. And one very uh, emotive, I guess, poison in which fluorine is found is 1080. Okay? The name for 1080, the chemical name, is sodium fluoroacetate. And in fact, this is a natural product. 1080 is indeed a natural product, and it comes from the Hefbla plant in southern Africa.
1: It doesn't look like that when you spell it.
4: I know, <laughs> now, I actually asked an Afrikaans speaker how to uh, pronounce that, and uh, <laughs> it's a GIFBLAAR, apparently. So.
1: I'll just spell it for our listeners, G-I-F-B-L-A-A-R.
4: <laughs> yes. So, again, forgive, as, as per usual, forgive my pronunciation, but it is a natural product. That is probably news to quite a few listeners.
1: Now, you also get fluoroacetate in lots of plants in Western Australia, This is me putting my zoologist hat on, where native species are able to safely eat them because they've just evolved with it, basically. But introduced animals can't, and they die. So the commercial product, as you've said, 1080, is sodium fluoroacetate. Mm -hmm. And they do actually use it to control feral cats and dogs in Western Australia. And the Department of Conservation in New Zealand here is going to use 1080, over a million hectares of conservation land this winter, to control predators. So in my book, that's a great use of fluorine. What's another use?
4: I totally agree with you on that, Alison. I think it's a very, very useful weapon, I guess, in our fight against all of these uh, nasty imported species. Anyway, another use, um, this is a slightly nasty use as well, uranium enrichment. So if you want a nuclear power or a nuclear bomb, then what you have to do is to separate two isotopes of uranium, the two naturally occurring isotopes, uranium-235 and uranium-238. So most uranium is 238, but 235 is the fissionable isotope. So then the question then becomes, how do you separate those two? And what you do is you make uranium hexafluoride, UF6 is its chemical formula, and it really, really surprisingly is a gas just above room temperature, which is very, very unusual. And what you then do is you put this gas in an enormous great centrifuge, and inside the centrifuge, what happens is that the heavier version of UF6 containing the 238 isotope will go to the edge first and it will separate slightly from the uranium 235 isotope. And so, if you do this lots and lots and lots of times, you can then up your concentration of uranium 235 from less than 1% up to around about the necessary 4 or 5%, which is what you need for fission.
1: Well, you're the chemistry <laughs> professor, and I'll take your word for it. <laughs> so just coming back from nuclear reactions, at home then, I might have fluorine compounds in my medicine cupboard, yep. in the bathroom, and my toothpaste. What else?
4: Mm-hmm. One that everybody probably has heard of, a, a little thing called Teflon. And the discovery of Teflon was totally accidental. So Teflon is the non-stick coating on your frying pan. And this was first discovered in 1938. A guy by the name of Roy Plunkett was working in his laboratory and he had a cylinder of a gas called tetrafluoroethylene and it was stated that this contained one kilo of the tetrafluoroethylene. He only got 990 grams out of it, so the story goes, and he was intrigued as to what had happened to the other 10 grams, and so don't try this at home, kids. He decided to cut the cylinder in half And he found this white powder in the cylinder, and that white powder was eventually shown to be Teflon.
1: Thanks, Alan. That was Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology. And you can find all the episodes of Elemental, as well as the Kākāpō Files podcast, on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. Many thanks for your company. Until next time, it's goodnight from me, Alison Balance. Paul marie.